Welcome to the Headache 360 Podcast, a place to listen and learn about the diagnosis and treatment of chronic headache and migraine pain, because information can be the best medicine. Hello, and welcome to the Headache 360 Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Lowenstein, and today we're going to talk about migraine surgery. That's what I do as a um, treatment for migraines and chronic headaches of all types. And way, the way that I want to address this is I'm going to provide a excerpt from a podcast that I was on called Beauty and the Surgeon by Dr. Jason Martin. I strongly urge uh, people to listen to his podcast. He has a lot of very interesting people on his show, and he's a board-certified plastic surgeon, very well-respected, and I am indebted to him for having me on his his podcast. Uh, but we went into a lot of the details about migraine surgery, nerve decompression surgery, the types of patients that I help, and I think that providing you with uh, that information here uh, will will be an excellent introduction into the, the ways that uh, I can help uh, migraine sufferers. So um, please enjoy the following excerpt from um, Dr. Martin's podcast, Beauty and the Surgeon. Uh, And in this format, he interviews me. So uh, I uh, hope you enjoy it. And I hope you find it very informative. You've made a name for yourself, a very talented surgeon. I know that. I came in contact with you through uh, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. You were on the board. You were head of the Young Plastic Surgeons Organization, which is part of ASPS. Um, you were part of the mentor board, I think, at one point uh, in terms of the implants. A very successful surgeon, uh, cosmetic surgeon uh, oriented primarily. And yeah, everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, I'm talking to you on the phone and you're, you start talking about headache surgery. And here's a person that has it all inherently with where they're located with the practice and everything and you and you're talking about headache surgery and in some ways i was like what's dr lowenstein talking about here he's a little bit crazy um but that's that's justifiable yeah that's justifiable yeah but i do think it's important to note that your interest in headache surgery really kind of goes back to all your experiences throughout training and also your personal experiences you were micro trained a very successful surgeon very talented and you, you saw an uh, opportunity to help people like yourself then also use your surgical talents that you inherently have from your training and your, and your private practice. So um, I'm not sure this is uh, probably not what you're getting at, but I will say this about what we do. Plastic surgery is a very, very diverse field. Like, and not a lot of people know that, for example, the first transplants were done by, by plastic surgeons. So the pioneering spirit of people in our field um, is great and so I've had a really great opportunity um, in my career to kind of reinvent myself several times like I did reconstruction here in in Denver for for many years and it was fantastic and then I thought okay well what's the next challenge that we can we can look at and so uh, when I left Kaiser um, and again is fantastic practice but I'm an only child and at the end of the day after a period of time I'm kind of better off making my own decisions and and, um, on my own than in a big 
company, which is why I decided to, to leave Kaiser. And I ended up in Santa Barbara, not even knowing where Santa Barbara was or what it was like initially. Um, but I got lucky and I ended up there. And I got to train there with one of the top aesthetic surgeons. And as you know, a lot of fellowships for um, aesthetic surgery are, what, three months to maybe a year. I got to work with this guy for three years all the time and basically did a three-year aesthetic fellowship. Um, and then he retired and I took over his practice. So then for the last 10 years, I've been doing aesthetic surgery. It's great, love it, it's a lot of fun. Um, but kind of thinking, okay, well, what's the next challenge that I can look at? And so this headache surgery just is, it seems to be a great opportunity. It, it fits with my world because, again, I've, I've had these issues. I can identify with patients, um, and I think a lot of patients really appreciate that because, again, if you haven't had this, you don't know what it's like. And so um, it, it's really, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just very, very lucky to be doing, you know, what I'm getting to do in the field that we're both But in. we don't, in this podcast, we don't believe in luck. I mean, you have huh. circumstances, and then you have an innate ability to understand those opportunities and take advantage of them. And when I say take advantage, I don't mean in a way that's manipulative. I mean that you utilize all your experiences in life. You were fortunately a good surgeon at the right time. You were very well connected and respected, so you came into contact with Dr. Um, Gurion or... Uh, Janice or all these people kind of working in this field and you were able to reach out and implement that in your practice and you, you should be commended for that but more importantly we need people like you in our field we need people to take uh, reach out and grab some of these novice novel surgeries and and to keep expanding to keep on trying to improve the health of people but for, you know from a plastic surgery standpoint but in, in this case from a functionality yeah, standpoint. Quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this is this is that's that's the biggest issue with what's with what we're doing is quality of life issue. Mm -hmm. And I can absolutely see that. I mean I've never had a, a migraine, but I can definitely understand the having spoken to people who have that it can take a while to like not be to like be understood. You know, that there's so many symptoms that can add to it and it, you know, can kind of become they get so deep in their treatment or in their lack of treatment that people stop believing them, they think their symptoms are fake. So going to someone yeah. who's experienced those symptoms and knows that they're not faking it, they're not, you know, making these up. At the very least can be compassionate. That's what I mean. Yeah. Relate. Can understand that yeah, yeah. these symptoms are all real. Like they're not they're right. in your head, but they're not in your head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people get uh, a social stigmata about mm -hmm. them um, from Missing having work. migraines, yeah. and a lot of people lose their job yeah. because they can't function um, at, at work, and you know, sick days turn into one after another after another, and you don't have an understanding boss or look at the you can't do your job. Um, and then, yeah, these people are really, it, it's a, it can ruin people's lives. I, I, the, you know, I've had patients tell me that they were considering assisted suicide, right? Um, and we operate on them and then they're like, I haven't felt this great in years. And it's just, you know, you hear that from somebody and You can't, I mean, it fills you for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So... All right, let's get into it. So if people have migraines or migraine sufferers, what do they usually do first? They go see a neurologist or get referred to a neurologist? They usually go to their own doctor. Okay. And then um, their own doctor will often send them to a neurologist. And um, 
you know, from there, you can, so many different things can happen. You can go to headache specialists, you can go to pain doctors. Um, a lot of my patients have, are, are seeing multiple physicians. And um, there's, there's so many different ways to try and attack this. And a lot of people, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get, one of the things that we get is, a, we don't get, the neurologists get is an MRI of the brain. Because at the end of the day, you want to make sure that there's nothing else going on, right? So um, you want to make sure there's no brain tumor or, or anything like that. So uh, then you get people who they're looking so hard for a reason that this is happening. And they get an MRI and their brain looks normal. And they're, they're uh, crushed, yeah. right? Like I was hoping that there was going to be a tumor there, right? You know, but th that's normal. And then it's, you know, how can we attack something that we can't see it's, you know, the problem is right here, or um, it, 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 can, it, it can devolve into a, a whole, you know, I'm seeing this person for my narcotics, I'm going to see this person to get a um, nerve stimulator put in, that's one of the things that, that some people do. I'm gonna see this other doctor um, for meditation uh, issues, a lot of, and a lot of these things are successful. Like a lot of people will do, um, there's something called a, a date piercing. You know what that is? Yes. Right? Yep. Um, and so a lot of people will get a date piercing and it helps them with their headache, which is awesome. I didn't know there was a right? correlation there. Yeah. So, you know, people say to me, you know, should I go get this piercing? Absolutely. Like, lots of different things work for lots of different people. So that's like on the, the theory then of like Eastern medicine that it's somehow like disrupting your chi in that area? There, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there hasn't been any studies. Um, there's a lot of discussion about this and people, and it doesn't work for everybody by any means, right? So a lot of people said, yeah, I tried that, it didn't work. But um, it, it's, we're, it's not really understood. And that is part of the problem is that migraines are not completely understood and so um you know it's interesting that when you know in all of these doctors that you would see with a migraine the plastic surgeon is about the last guy <laughs> on that you know on that list and so, uh, so so for like the patient with a migraine how what percentage does first line treatments really work for them like 80 percent or 70 percent uh first line treatments? like you know uh, you know i i would probably medications. say ballpark around 50 percent okay um but you know then there's a there's a tiered thing of going yeah. to one thing and then another thing and then another thing and and you're literally at the end of the rope yeah i mean yeah. so look i i love the surgery it's awesome right but it's not for everybody if you like i haven't had the surgery because i take zomig which is a type of triptan and I can function on Zomig. Like Zomig wipes out some people. It makes them so exhausted. But you and I have had five days of operating straight without right. eating or sleeping, and I'm kind of used to that. So Heard that, that side effect, down. yeah, yeah it, you know, it doesn't bother me. I'm Won't stop, it, can't right? stop. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, but some people can't take that, um, that type of, uh, side effect, so Zomig doesn't work for them, um, but a lot of people can, and so the point is that if date piercing, medications, nerve stimulators, if these things work for you, that is awesome, and that's really the thing to do. You only go to surgery if nothing else works. 
But in those patients where nothing else works and we can do some of our screening tests, which I'm assuming we'll talk about in a little bit, um, the efficacy or the ability for this to actually work is extraordinarily high. And so that's, that's, a, that's a great thing. Right. Are you seeing an increase in the number of people who are finding out about the surgery and actively seeking you out? Uh, that is a hard question. You know, it, it's, are we seeing an increase? And there's, there are more people know about this today than yesterday than last week. Mm -hmm. Okay. But today, hardly any people know about this. Right. So 15% right? so, of all Americans, 35 million people, right? Migraine sufferers. Oh, right. 50% yeah, yeah. of those, the first line therapies, the drugs and stuff help out. And then you do the, the CAM stuff or alternative treatments, all these kind of things. I mean, there's a, millions of people out there suffering from migraines that are not totally getting relief or even functional even functional improvement with all these therapies and in reality the surgery has a lot of potential at least from the data that's out there yeah i mean the data that's out there is you know is very favorable um my personal experience is very favorable um but the the biggest the biggest problem with migraine surgery is people don't know it exists yeah right and you know honestly we also have a reasonable amount of difficulty with um getting people to refer to us because you know as kind of talking about earlier the neurologists um they I think they feel similarly, like the plastic surgeon's about the last person you need when you have a migraine, right? And so for a plastic surgeon to go to a neurologist and say, I, I can help people that are at the end of their, you know, who, the subset of people that are not getting better with what you're doing, I, I may be able to help. Um, it, they're skeptical, right? And I can understand that because look, if I was a neurologist and said, you know, yeah, look at my uh, plastic Dr. Martin, surgery let me, research, I, I, yeah. I have a great way to right. do a facelift. You should look at it. Right. You'd be like, right, come on. Man. <laughs> yeah. you know, right. So I, I totally get it. But it's it's on us to get people the data to review and actually see the success rates, which are better than 90 percent. And hmm. um, that's part of what we're you know what we're having to do right now. I mean, the data, I'm sorry, just real quick, the data goes back 15 years, or more than that, uh, 18 years now almost, and it's robust data. I personally looked at it. Uh, I highly advise people who like that kind of stuff to look into it themselves and see that these are real studies with larger numbers, statistical significance uh, that is formidable and an uh, efficacy, and we can go into that, what that means, but an efficiency or a, an improvement that is really there. Um, I mean, it's, I don't know. It, I don't know how, so Dr. Guyron in Cleveland um, is kind of the father of all of this. And his first study um, used sham surgery, right? I don't even know how you get that passed through the IRB. Right, how do you get right? approval to put so somebody to sleep? So half of the patients go to sleep. If you're in the Cleveland sleep, Clinic or Mayo Clinic, you can yeah. do what you want. Maybe, well, and yeah. Dr. Guyron is Dr. Guyron. He, he's so, you know, he is a very, 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 very well-respected Probably the most worst, exactly. Yeah. So, but I mean, he he put people to sleep, made incisions, and in half the people he went and did the decompression, and in others he just he didn't do any decompression. And so, right, and you can see, I mean, that's as 
strong a study as you can possibly do. And when you see huge statistical significance that the people who got the surgery largely got better, and the people who didn't, you know, got the sham surgery largely didn't get better, it's not vague, right? What percentages are we talking about here in some of those studies? And I know it depends on the site. We'll get into it more in detail. But what percentage are we talking about? So, you know, um, when we talk about improvement, we're looking at, you know, there's a subset of patients who never get another migraine, okay? And that can be variably in the high 30s to low 40%. Um, and if you're looking at... So a third are cured with surgery. Cured, never have another migraine, right. Um, and then if you look at uh, a, having a successful procedure as being decreasing your migraine symptoms by at least 50%. So that means that you have at least less than half the number of, uh, of headaches that you're used to, and those headaches are less than half as severe as they used to be um, over... Like, it, there's some studies that show that to happen in, in the high 80%, some in the low 90%. Um, but, you know, we can, in the worst case scenario, let's say 80%, but in fact, it's more closely to 90%. We can decrease these headaches to be basically normal headaches. Everybody has headaches, right? So um, I have patients who they still have headaches, but they'll email me like, a happy email. Hey, I had a headache today. I took Tylenol and it got better. That is unheard of to a migraine patient. They don't. Right. That, that's that, that's never happened to have you know to, to these patients before. So even just to celebrate having a normal headache, that's what kind of patients you know that that's what these patients are dealing with. You know, if you think about it, um, plastic surgery is criticized a lot. Uh, for the level of data they have in, in studies. And these are one of the situations where we, we actually did a pretty good job. I and mean, I'm saying that from my professional opinion. Uh, other people may differ with me, but uh, that's what I thought was remarkable when I was researching for this podcast. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of data. There's now, they're looking at five and 10 year data. Right. And it's all favorable. Yeah. Right? So. But let, let, I do want to say this one thing. It there are people who have the surgery that it doesn't that that it and it doesn't work right. okay those people right there are non-responders out there and so um you know would you think i mean and, and that's going to happen with any surgery no uh, no surgery is, has a hundred percent success in most cases right. but uh do you think some of those people have etiologies that really have not been deduced and it's a lot more even more complicated than we think or is that well i think there's a lot of error? different there's a lot of different possible reasons. Yeah. I mean, there could be uh, there. Uh, I've seen some uh, redo operations of other surgeons that um, maybe didn't release the entire nerve adequately. Um, I think that some people may have gotten this operation and not necessarily been uh, great candidates. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I have a particular way that I diagnose as to whether or not the patient's a candidate and for me that's worked consistently um but you know that there there are always going to be mistakes or you know in, in that diagnostic kind of situation for example and we can talk about this in a little bit but you know i i we do a local block 
um, to see whether somebody's headache gets better, whether or not that nerve is something that, that we can work with. And, you know, I guess that certain people could get a nerve block and get better, but it kind of be serendipitous rather than an actual anatomic issue and those people then get an operation, but this wasn't the problem in the first place. So, I mean, I, 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 I think just like any surgery, there's going to be lots of different reasons that a small subset of those people right, are not helped. Yeah. But we are fortunate in the fact that the people who are not helped by this are a very small subset. Right, and I would say less that than 10%. To have a surgery that, I mean, I know that I'm generalizing here that has a 90% you know, success rate yeah. is, is pretty darn good. And if I was a you know, if I was going to implement a different surgery in my practice, I would be okay with a 90% success rate yeah. being open to the, to the patient themselves. All right. So we're a patient, we have severe headaches, we have migraines, we go through all the treatments beforehand. <coughs> and, that's right. And we get referred to Dr. Lawrence, who, by the way, is in Southern California. Um, and we get referred to Dr. Lowenstein. So what is the process by which we, uh, as the patient, get evaluated? So in an ideal situation, you show up in my office in pain, right? To the point that we'll talk to you before you come for your, for your uh, visit and say, you know, different people have different triggers. So we talked about people with perfume, a lot of people, red wine, caffeine, chocolate, right? And so we say, the night before you come in to see me, have uh, <laughs> chocolate with uh, with red wine and a coffee chaser and you know, do perfume everything that you can do to try and ha come in with a migraine. So optimally, you, you, patients come in in pain. Um, it's a strange thing to say, but it is what it is. So um, then we'll do, we have you fill out um, prior to this a very, very detailed uh, history and um, we want to make sure that you actually have migraines and that you actually have seen a neurologist and you actually don't, you've had an MRI and we know that this is, you know, the problem that we're, we're working with. So then I'll do a physical exam um, and there are, there are about 14 nerves in the head and neck that cause, in, on seven on each side, that uh, we know can trigger these headaches. And so one of the things I do is I'll just from a history try to find out where person's headache is coming from is it coming from above the eye and radiating to the back is it coming from the back and radiating here etc um, and we try to figure out where that where that is from and uh, I look for what's called a tenel sign so a tenel sign is where you you know what it does a tenel sign is um, where you tap on the nerve and you get uh, some reaction either uh, increase in pain tingling um, and uh, a lot of patients will have sensitivity um, to, to tapping or a tenel sign in various nerves. So, okay, that's where the headache seems to be coming from primarily. And so in my practice, then what I'll do is use some um, local anesthetic, lidocaine and marcaine. Lidocaine is a quick onset, uh, lasts for about an hour. Marcaine has a little bit of a longer asset, uh, um, onset. Uh, but lasts for about four hours. And I will give you a shot where I know that nerve is. Do you um, use like an ultrasound guidance or do you just... No, a, a lot of people do. I, I don't. Um, just from, you've operated on the nerve enough time, you kind of know where it is. Times, you kind of know where it is. Um, and a lot of the ultrasounds are also used. And again, this is, you know, a couple layers further than we're going here. But 
um, to uh, try and find the vascular, the, the blood vessels that could be crossing these nerves and mm-hmm. causing compression. Yeah, we'll get to that, though. Um, but basically, I'm going down to where the nerve kind of starts and giving this local anesthetic. And then um, we kind of turn off the lights in the room, and I go back to my office, and I do some charting, and uh, I come back in about five minutes. And more often than not, the patient will say, my pain has decreased from a, let's say they started an eight, to X, okay? And so if they say, I had an eight five minutes ago, and now my pain is gone, then we can be pretty certain that that nerve is, uh, is the problem and most of the problem, if not all of the problem. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So you said there, there's... It's your podcast, yeah, right? Th- thank you very no. much. <laughs> I have one and only, only one question for you. Uh, so do you uh, hmm. inject only one nerve at a time or do you inject multiple areas? I so, mean, how do you deduce that out? So I inject one nerve at a time. And this is what I call targeted injection mapping. So the idea is we're mapping out the problematic nerves. So um, when I have injected that first nerve and I come back, and let's say they say, you know, I had an eight, and now my pain is down to a three. Okay, so we basically start again. Now where is it coming from? Well, you know, it was coming from back here. Back here, and behind you fix the head. This, behind the head. Right, behind the head. Um, and so now it's coming from, you know, the, the remaining pain is kind of in my temple or above my eye. So we look for a Tinel sign there. But even if there's not a Tinel sign, if this is where it's coming from, then we give another shot there. I leave the office, go do some charting, come back in five minutes. Now what's your pain? So what we're doing is trying to work down to a pain of zero. And in doing so, mapping out each of the nerves that are problematic and in a targeted way. So that's, um, so by the end of the consultation, you may have several injections, you may just have one. But the idea is that we're moving from severe pain towards, if not to, a pain-free state by blocking these nerves. You're localizing the areas. Also in some of these studies, like preempt, where the neurologists do Botox, um, you can Botox the areas. Can you explain? And in some of these studies, they actually use Botox as the localizing agent. Right. So explain the difference between lidocaine and Botox in that so situation. So lidocaine literally blocks the nerve. Okay, it works directly on the nerve to prevent any signals from from going uh, through that nerve or back to the brain. Uh, Botox. Um, we know Botox has some effects on the actual nerve itself, but the majority of the effects of Botox are on the muscles surrounding the nerve. And I guess we should track back and, and say that what, what we're trying to fix is nerve compression. So what we found um, is that compression or chronic irritation of these nerves are, are what are causing or triggering the migraine headache, okay? So what we're trying to do at, in the end point is take these compressed tight areas around these nerves and releasing them so the nerve can be in a relaxed situation without these compressions causing this chronic irritation, causing the migraines. So by using a blocking, a nerve blocker like the lidocaine or, or, or a marking, we're actually preventing any signal from that irritation further out to get back to the brain to cause the, the pain. Okay. So even if it's still compressed by muscles, 
it's the, you're, the, it's the nerve the can't symptom. can't relay those distress right. signals back to the brain. Um, Botox works by relaxing those muscles that are causing the compression. And so, um, ideally, let's talk about the nerves um, in the brow. So you have the supraorbital and supratrochlear nerves. Um, and this is when people get aesthetic Botox. What we're doing is putting Botox in what's called the corrugator muscle, which causes the wrinkles and the glabella, um, the, the 11s that people say when they're frowning. Um, and these nerves go through that muscle. So Botox often will prevent headaches in patients who have um, these muscles causing this compression, which is causing the migraines. So um, some people, instead of doing this with lidocaine, will give Botox and then assess over a period of time. Because as we know, Botox only, it takes about four or five days to take effect. Um, the, the issue that I found with Botox is because you are adding volume to the muscle, which is already compressing the nerve, mm. things get worse before they get better. That's Not always, but Really sometimes. interesting because people sometimes, especially people who haven't had Botox before, will complain of headaches after their first Botox injection. Because that volume that you're putting in there is causing more irritation. And that's, you know, that's tough for the patient because I came to the surgeon to get better. No, and he worse. made me worse, right? And so, you know, for the first week, it was a lot of phone calls, mm -hmm. right? Um, but a lot of those patients, after that period of time, will then find that their headaches are improved because as the Botox takes effect, there's less compression, less irritation, less of that distress signal going back. Um, however, Botox, again, works on muscle, but it doesn't work on... Um, blood vessels or bones or fascia which is connect, you know connective tissue and a lot of times there are these other non-muscular things that are causing the compression mm -hmm. so if Botox doesn't work it doesn't necessarily mean the surgery won't work does that make sense yes. yeah totally absolutely but if the lidocaine, if the lidocaine right. doesn't work that's a better prognostic thing in my world that, okay, even if we block the nerve, right. the headache's not change. getting worse, right? Yeah. And I can tell you that I've seen that twice, mm -hmm. right? I mean, almost everybody that gets to me is improved by these blocks, which is remarkable because I'm granted, I'm, I'm, a, I'm seeing a very small subset. Mm -hmm. But if almost everybody that I'm seeing is responding to this, you know, you gotta wonder how many people are out there that are potential responders right yeah yeah so so you, you have peripheral nerves and those nerves get compressed and that's what we think is going on there are certain areas of the head that uh, we see this over and over with migraine sufferers most of the time it's muscle but it can be other things like you're talking about fascia or um, where the nerves come out of the bone the bone itself just different types of differing anatomy can affect that uh, they come in, you use the lidocaine to numb the nerve, and if they get resolution of symptoms or an improvement, then you have a good idea that something around this nerve is irritating it. If I can go in there and release it and give it some freedom, it won't be so angry and send back painful stimuli to the brain, which then relates to this chronic problem called migraines. 
Okay, I guess we're done. Okay. We just did the whole thing. Exactly. So I just want to add one thing. It's really interesting. Science, uh, you, you, you come on things sometimes just accidentally, and the, the way this all came about was yeah. that in the old days we used to do, well, I mean, some people still do it, but endoscopic brow lifts uh, where you would go in uh, with small holes up in the hair area and you would uh, take out the muscles between the eyebrows, the corrugator and procerus, the ones that caused the 11s, you would actually physically remove them. And what they saw after in, in a small subset of those patients who were migraine sufferers, that they didn't have migraines in that area anymore. And luckily we had intelligent physicians, surgeons who said, well, maybe this, there's something around these muscles or this muscle itself is causing something to, to lead to these migraine symptoms. Yes, I agree that luckily we have intelligent people, but don't point at me. That was Dr. Guyron yeah. who really noticed that. And then he did a whole bunch of subsequent studies. And he and another friend of uh, mine, Jeff Janis, uh, who's at Ohio State, um, they did all of these study, anatomic studies on cadavers, finding different nerves, um, testing with uh, different with Botox and, and lidocaine, and really figuring out which of these nerves are problematic. And we're still, again, we're in the relatively speaking early stages of this. And we may find other nerves down the line that, that are still uh, an issue. But right now, you know, we're dealing with three nerves in the back of the head, two nerves in the temple area, and two nerves in, in above, the, above the eye, and we're having good success with those. Let's get into that. So for those listening to this, you can also watch it on video. So we're going to kind of describe it <coughs> to, to you when we're kind of talking about different nerves, but there's also going to be an associated video with this that you can look and see Dr. Lowenstein actually pointing at, uh, we actually have a head here. Yeah, so. Um, what is his name? I have to know. The, uh, the patient's head? Yes. Uh, uh, you know something? I. Gosh, I I feel bad. I, I haven't named, named I haven't named the head, right? Uh, I, I think um, uh, Amy maybe. No, it's a male. It's a male. That's right. So um, or, or well, short-haired well, female. I don't that's know. Right. right. With so, dark eyebrows. You know, right. Well, uh, can I say one thing for like yeah. just the common person out there? If um, most people who are listening probably haven't been in a cadaver lab to understand like the beautiful, delicate nature of nerves. Like when you're in a cadaver lab doing dissections and you find these nerve bundles, like they're amazingly intricate and so delicate but they also at the same time are shockingly large in some areas of the body like these nerves are big you know, they, and yeah. there's a couple of these nerves that are big and there's a couple of these nerves that are wispy small yeah. and a lot of the nerves actually branch and so and again who are the non-responders you know we it, to get a really a complete surgical outcome you know we got to ideally find each branch and decompress each branch which can be um oh, like a challenging, maze. right yeah, yeah they exactly have, yeah these beautiful yeah. long tendrils and just right. like nerves are really beautiful exactly yeah. all right so let's imagine we have a patient and all areas are involved okay so and we're going to go through you're going to have you quickly go through the different areas the trigger areas or the localized areas and kind of give an idea what that patient would go through on the day of surgery, how many surgeries it would take, and the process of surgery for each location. Okay, so let's actually move back, and we're gonna call the, the head Thomas, because okay. I'll tell Thomas. you where I, this, there is uh, um, Dr. Um, Mühlberger in uh, Germany and, uh, and England. Uh, he has several centers in Europe and uh, treats a lot of migraine patients, and he was good enough to send me um, this, this head, this prop, 
Um, and uh, so we'll 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 call it we'll we'll call it his name. He looks but, like a Thomas. Yeah, there you go. So and this um, there's some of the stuff that that is really nicely um, shown here. There's a couple nerves that are not uh, that are not shown, but um, here we can see these are this is the greater occipital nerve. He's pointing to the back um, of the head. Yes. Right? So um, and that nerve comes from. It's called C2, which is uh, um, one of the branches of the spinal cord. Um, and it, uh, it goes through several different muscles, including the trapezius muscles, which, as we know, when, when we're stressed, a lot of people hold their, their stress in their neck and shoulders. And um, this nerve can be compressed by the trapezius as well as what's called the splenus capitis which is a deeper muscle and helps um, with head stability um, and it can also be compressed by the occipital arteries which are often kind of up here in the and now I'm pointing to the higher portion of the, the back of the head and it can have arteries that cross and, and cause problems. Right, so if you feel the, your neck and you go up to where the skull, you can start to feel the skull, that's the area that he's pointing at yeah, right like now. like where right. your spine kind of meets up with your head. Yeah, exactly. But it makes so. sense why motion would be such a trigger then for people because some of those muscles you mentioned are really key in kind of keeping us, our head stable, yeah. like keeping our horizon where it is. So like. And, and interestingly, a lot of patients who have this problem, and, and when, when we're dealing with these nerves, we call, um, it's called occipital neuralgia. So neuralgia is a inflammation of the nerve, occipital is occipital area or occipital nerves. Excuse me. A lot of these patients have had a, a, either a recent or distant history of um, whiplash mm. because what's happened is you get a whiplash injury and then scarring down of the muscles which were torn during the during the whiplash injury and then all of that causes tightness around these nerves so a lot of patients that I'll talk to who've had this surgery um, you know who, who, are, who are considering the surgery I'll ask you know did you ever have a car accident I'll go you know I, I forgot about this but back in so-and-so I did get into a car accident when did your headache start uh, you know about that time right and so it, it, it's it's interesting to see that a lot of these are, are can be post-traumatic issues um, but back to these nerves um, uh, there's also uh, here a third occipital nerve there are three three occipital nerves and the third occipital nerve come is, is in the same general area just a little further down on on the neck and it innervates a much smaller area but can also be a trigger so we see a third nerve is they branches or or just three different distinct there's nerves? three distinct different okay. nerves Got but it. all in three the occipital region right and therefore occipital nerves the lesser occipital nerve actually is not shown here but it's down um in the lower lateral neck uh, comes out around what's called the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which is another neck stabilizer and helps with turning of the neck. And for example, for me, that's one of my triggers. So when I have a really significant headache, I'm just rubbing right on the side of my neck. And, you know, before I knew what I was doing, I was relaxing. I was trying to, yeah. right, massage those areas to try and relax. The muscles and then when I learned you know I progressed through plastic surgery and learned about this you know my like, gosh oh it all makes sense right so in order to 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 get to these nerves 
Um, the way I do this is a, uh, a vertical incision that's largely here in, in the hairline. Right, so it's in the midline. In the midline. Okay, a vertical incision. Now, do you have to shave the hair? Yes. Okay. We do. Um, in women, and a lot of patients are women because more women suffer from migraines than men, um, we can shave the head in a manner if you have long hair, you'd never know the difference unless you actually lift up your head. Some patients go with it and show up to my office with a partially shaved head and a totally new, uh, <laughs> new uh, hairstyle. But um, uh, yes, we do have to, we do have to shave uh, around the, the incision. Um, and then I go down through the, the fascia of the midline down to uh, the muscle layers and then dissect um, to one or the other side and, you know, without going too, right. too detailed, too granular. Yeah. Um, find the nerve. And then we trace the nerve from its deepest point to its most superficial point in what we call the subcutaneous tissue or the fatty area just below the skin because these are all sensory nerves at the end of the day at the end of their course they are providing feeling or sensation to parts of the scalp so they're going up into the fat below the skin and there's no compression there um, and so we trace it to get up to that point mm -hmm. and he, back here um, I'm going through the trapezius through the splenus capitis um, taking out little pieces of muscle and also making kind of a trough for the muscle to, to lie in. For the nerve to lie in, excuse me, thank yeah. you. And I do that for the greater occipital and for the lesser occipital. And then before we close, um, we take a, a, a flap, so a little kind of piece of fat that is just below the skin and put it along the nerve to again prevent further scar tissue or compression from happening. So we kind of pad the nerve with a piece oh, of fat. Oh, phospholipid cushion. There you go, right? <laughs> um, over for the um, lesser occipital nerve, I usually make a smaller uh, separate incision at, uh, again, down uh, the back of the neck towards kind of towards the side. Um, and that incision is usually an inch maybe and go down to to the muscle layer we can find that nerve relatively easily um, if it's easily decompressed then we'll decompress it but for the smaller nerves um, of which the the um, third occipital the lesser occipital and we'll talk about the ones in the temple as well these nerves really innervate very very small areas so sometimes if the nerve looks really bad we'll just cut the nerve right. and bury it in an adjacent muscle to prevent what's called a neuroma or an abnormal growth of the nerve, which can also be painful. Um, patients won't even really recognize a deficit of feeling from from those small nerves that are. That but are the bad. greater occipital, you do not, because yeah. that's something that would be. Right. The greater occipital, um, it, it, we can cut it. Um, if it's severely diseased, we'll cut it. Um, if it's a secondary operation where we've done, um, a done a release and it has not been successful, um, and the, but the patient is still showing us that they're, this is still the problem, then we'll sometimes go and cut that nerve. But uh, that can cause numbness and tingling in a larger aspect of the scalp, and that can be unpleasant. Yeah, people um, find like numb scalp disconcerting. Right. Um, but a lot of patients, you know, given that or right. the severity of their migraines, a lot of patients say, you know, that's fine, cut, cut, cut the nerve. Um, but if we don't have to cut that nerve, we, we, we try not to cut that nerve.
okay? Um, and then we close things up. We use buried sutures, so there's no sutures to come out. Uh, some people use a drain. I don't, I don't use a drain. Um, and, you know, after surgery, it's a, you can be sore because we're cutting, we're cutting muscles. Right, it's um, still but, surgery. Right, but patients can, can um, tell the difference between post-operative soreness versus migraines. Mm. Excuse me, two totally different things. So, um, so patients will have soreness for a couple of days, um, sometimes a couple of weeks. And actually, sometimes they'll have good and bad days of actual migraines afterwards. Um, again, the nerve has been manipulated during the surgery and is kind of angry. Right. And you have post-operative swelling too. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, some patients will have worsening, worse days, better days, and over time, over the next few months, kind of equilibrate to a, to a situation which in more cases than not is favorable to what they had before surgery. So in the occipital area, you make a small vertical incision in the midline. That's in the hair-bearing area. So it, once that heals, you're not going to see that. Right. You have small little... Uh, incisions on the back of the neck, a little bit to the side, if you if, if necessary. You have short hair, you yeah. could see them, but they tend to heal very they tend, well. And it's in a, it's those in go a, away. Yeah. Uh, how long does that specific procedure take, just for the back of the head? So it takes about two to three hours if you're going to do both sides. Okay. And then uh, for that surgery, you'll be laying face down, which we call a prone position. It's under general anesthesia, uh, which means there's a tube to help support you breathing. Um, and it would be done in a surgery setting, like a, like a surgery center or a hospital, just FYI. All right. There's other areas, too. So Let's talk about those. We can take Thomas's... Um, Poor Thomas. He just took I his know, eye off. If people can see this, he just took, yeah. Yeah. took his eye off. And so what he did is now he's looking at the uh, left eye, the bones around the eye, and then the temporal area. So if you go from your eye and you go to the outside where your sideburn is, that's kind of the temporal area. Right. And so, you know, the, the nerves above the eyelid, um, above the, excuse me, above the orbit or above the eye, the supraorbital and supratrochlear nerves, um, they go through uh, variably either holes or notches in the bone uh, in the superior orbit or the eye socket. And so a lot of times there's compression there. And so we'll go and we'll actually unroof the, what's called a foramen, or the hole that the nerve goes through. Um, if it's a notch, which is also common, a lot of times there's this fascia or connective tissue that's forming a bridge over the notch, we'll release that. Um, we'll release as, you know, here we're looking at the corrugator muscle and we'll, we'll trace the nerves and all of their branches through the muscle to try and release these areas as well. Um, a lot of times there's uh, uh, blood vessels associated with these bundles will ligate or, or uh, disrupt, uh, cut those uh, blood vessels so they're not a problem. Um, and again, tracing the nerve from the deeper portion through all of these areas of potential compression out towards and to the subcutaneous tissue. And you're coming at that superiorly. You're coming. No. So there's there's two ways to do this. Okay. So there's the um, this endoscopic way, which is the way Dr. Gyron originally described it, and then there's um, it's called the transpalpebral or upper eyelid approach. So it's just real quick. It's the same incision or the same scar you would have if you went in and did your eyelids for cosmetic reasons. So Correct. it's in the crease of the upper eyelid. And a lot of you know some patients there they'll say, okay, well let's 
Let's, yeah, let's get my eyelids done. Let's get my too, migraines right? so, and my upper you know, eyelids taken eyelids care of. Too. Right. Um, so this is an it's an aesthetic scar, right? We're gonna get you're gonna end up uh, with uh, basically a very 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 fine transition or a white line um, in the upper lid in the fold of the lid where people just don't see things, yeah. right? So that's a very very well tolerated uh, incision. Um, and then, you know, lateral to your eye, you have crow's feet. Right, right? which means to the outside of your eye. Right. Everybody knows the crow's feet. Um, and so in here you can see this is um, the zygomaticotemporal temporal uh, uh, nerve, which if you feel this bone on the side of your, your eye and then you push towards your ear, you'll see there's a little divot. There's a little um, depression there. And that's where the zygomaticotemporal nerve is. Right, and if you know that, if you've always seen the classic thing when people have headaches, they're kind of rubbing their temples. Right. They're literally yeah, rubbing yeah, right in there. Right in the nerve, nerve. trying to release yeah. right. that. You know, and they don't even know that they're doing right. that, right? right? But um, so we can use those crow's feet uh, incision, this, this upper lid incision, and have it go into the crow's feet to access that nerve. cat eye eyeliner. There you go. (laughs) Stretch that out. Right, so Um, we already used that incision from a cosmetic standpoint, so it's well known to heal well and not be a problem. Very, very. I mean, I use the same incision when I'm doing mid-face lifts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, which was interesting to me because when I learned how to do all of this surgery, like, oh yeah, I know that that nerve, you'll know, is is right next to the uh, sentinel vein, right? Right, I mean, you know exactly. You've seen, I've I've been looking at this nerve for years, right? right? Um, but now we're, we're doing a similar operation for a different reason. So, um, so that nerve will either decompress uh, through the uh, temporal muscles or sometimes that nerve will just get cut. Because, because again, the distribution for sensation for that nerve, the zygomatic temporal is small and you can cut that. Exactly. Whereas the ones, the super trochlear or the super uh, orbital, <coughs> which again is uh, above your, in your eyebrow area, we don't, you don't usually cut those because those are a little bit more... Right, we try you try not to cut that. But okay. as you know, whenever we do a brow lift or, or talk about doing these kinds of things, we always one of the risks we talk about patients is that you might we have that nerve cut, yeah, right? Nerve and that fortunately not through wood here never happened to me. <laughs> but um, you know, one of the, the risk factors is that you would have a numb forehead. Mm-hmm. And you know, we try we certainly want to avoid that. So those nerves, um, when we're identifying the nerves and actually tracing them out through the muscles, uh, w- the only really way they get cut is if we're doing it intentionally, okay. right? Because we're identifying, we're going in to look at the nerves, right? So um, I mean, there's part of this out. is a little bit funny because in plastic surgery we spend so much time not cutting nerves. Right, trying yeah, to we're trying them. to we're trying to avoid. Yeah, I mean, that's like the them. that's like the yeah. main complication yeah. with most cosmetic procedures. Yeah, we actually cut the nerve. Right, these. but we also you know we spend a lot of time avoiding the area of the nerve. Exactly. Here we're actually looking at the nerve and going in. And it. so when you're looking at the nerve, it's hard to cut it unless you're trying, right? So um, so anyway, that's. Um, one, one, one question I have on yeah. this, just real quick. And, uh, Dr. Guyron, in one of his discussions on his technique, talks about taking the, uh, the fat from the, in, the inside portion of the upper eyelid and putting it like you did in the neck, yeah. doing the same thing. And I do that. Okay, for around the supertrochlear and superorbital Thank nerve you. in the eyebrow area. Yes, yeah. and that's exactly right. So okay. we, we do take um, some fat from the medial compartment and use it as a little, a right. little flap uh, there again to... Right. Um, provide a little pillow for the nerve so it doesn't not subject it to the right so there's a common theme here we're going in uh, you are going in we mm-hmm. as a as a as a as a 
profession are going in and releasing the compressing areas around these nerves and then what we're doing is wrapping those nerves in soft tissue or fat which allows for it to create a buffer so you don't have this when it starts to heal and scar down you don't have the scar uh, scar effect around the nerve compresses it down and you're running into the same effect remember uh, dr lowenstein talked about whiplash that's from scar tissue going down and compressing that nerves the same thing in effect if you go in there and actually do surgery mm -hmm. uh, and using fat Fat grafting is really common in plastic surgery in terms of softening areas and decreasing uh, tension on things. Uh, so fat has a positive component and also stem cells, supposedly. That's still, jury's still out on that. But um, okay, so you, you've done the, around the eye, zygomatic temporal, which is the um, temporal area going near your cyber. And then here, there's an auricular temporal, which is uh, a nerve that is kind of just in front of the ear. And there's a blood vessel that is often the culprit there. And so that's where sometimes we'll use ultrasound to find the, the area where those things cross. We can actually trace out the blood vessel and at the same time look for a tunnel sign. And where we see the tunnel sign at the blood vessel, that's where oftentimes that nerve is getting impressed. Mm. And that nerve, is the easiest to get to. We can just make a, a little incision right, it's usually within the hairline, um, and dissect right down, uh, and there it is. And, you know, ligate the blood vessel, do a little again, <coughs> excuse me, releasing of the nerve in that area, or in a worst case scenario, cutting it, because again, it's really just innervating a relatively small area. Um, and, uh, you know, we've seen, that's a very common area, again, between the temporal, headaches that you were discussing and people kind of massaging the, the, those areas, um, that, that's probably the easiest approach um, to, to get to that particular nerve. Is there any other areas on the front of the face that you would address? So we've talked about, so we have three areas so far. We have the base of the skull and the back right where your neck meets your skull. We have above the eyebrow, or in the eyebrow area, the upper eyelid, we have the temporal area where your sideburns are. Is there any other areas? And then there's the nose. So okay. a lot of people will have um, nerves, the, uh, variable compression in the, in the nose from turbinates, um, which are part of... They're outcroppings that... Uh, like the humidifier. Humidifier the, the air yeah. that goes to your yeah. nose. We've talked about actually on a rhinoplasty podcast, so you should definitely check that out, Beauty and the Surgeon. There you go. And uh, sometimes your septal deviation, which you can, uh, right. so that's the yeah. central the, portion of your nose. The tin pole bent. of the nose, yeah. Um, uh, and so you can get compression there. So um, that is the other approach that we do to disrupt those areas of compression. So you'll either do a septoplasty, where you're decompressing or in, um, and straightening the septum, or <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a turbinectomy where you actually take out the turbinate. Um, uh, and I'm, but to be honest with you, what I usually do for those patients is I will send them to an ENT surgeon. I was just going to ask um, if you work in just, conjunction with right, ENT because uh, I've I've done those surgeries. Uh, I do those surgeries, um, but these are not aesthetic things. These are functional things and um, will a lot of times incorporate several different, um, uh, you know, people who work in the nose uh, do a lot of nose. Yeah, we've talked about before. I mean, their primary job is nasal airways exactly. and sinuses, so it doesn't make sense that you wouldn't send it to them, especially for someone who needs a functional improvement. Exactly. It has nothing to do with aesthetics. So, so there's four different areas. 
So when you're talking about the face or these areas we've talked about in the face, you do that with the patient lying on their back, which we call supine. Again, it's general anesthesia. Is that correct? Uh, unless we're just doing a small cut down on the on the yeah. auricular temporal, but yes, it's okay. general anesthesia. And then uh, and no twitching allowed during this kind yeah. of surgery. No, you want somebody right. out. All right. So depending on the area, how much improvement can people get? Uh, you know. We we often see no more headaches, right? I mean, I, I, it, 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 you can get the entire spectrum, obviously, right? But um, the I've seen just a, a lot of success in, in all of these areas. Um, patients coming off narcotics, which right now is a you know touchstone in this country of how I love the narco- opiate yeah. uh, issues, and you know again this. Was kind of a little off topic, but a lot of these patients are doing ER visits because their head is exploding. And, you know, something's got to be done, and they end up in the emergency room, and the doctors won't give them narcotics, right? right? Because they think they're narcotic seeking. They're pain seekers. And exactly. Because right. there, there is no laboratory study or, right. or, or, or scan, ex- like MRI won't show it. Exactly. So, so you have to judge trust the patient's history yeah and so you've i mean i've had patients who are on fentanyl patches which is a very 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 strong opiate um and uh you know that subsequently wean themselves off of narcotics and i'm you know i try to get them almost immediately back with their pain doctor because Mm -hmm. you can you take yourself off narcotics too quickly that can be a problem but the patients are so eager to actually be rid of these things that they start to do it themselves, right? Um, uh, so, you know, just great success with decreasing medication, getting people back to work, getting people back with their families. Um, you know. One of the questions that I meant by that question is, is, is there more success in certain areas and less in others? Or what or, percentage of yeah. each type of surgery are you doing? Does one seem to be predominant? So, the right, that's, the, a, that's the, another question I had too. Yeah, the, there's the classically... Um, this started out in the front, so it was the um, the the superorbital and supratrochlear nerves that the were stuff, started out stuff near the eyebrow. Exactly, yeah. and I know a lot of people who say whatever nerves you're doing, also go do the the superorbital and supratrochlear nerves in, in the eyebrow because many patients have that problem as well. Um, in my practice. Uh, we see a little bit more uh, occipital neuralgia um, just because I think that that's kind of an emerging region like it's 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 not that's was um, of all of these areas it was the last kind of to be discovered and um, and now that we're seeing success with that there's a lot of patients who have these problems uh, back here, but I think that honestly, I think that these the questions you're asking are very um, regional and surgeon specific. Like okay. I think Dr. Gyron does um, probably more of the brow surgery because that was the original thing, and he fostered a very large practice doing that in the beginning. Um, whereas others of us, um, I, I think, we're finding that a lot of patients are having these posterior neck issues and uh, that is kind of an expanding and growing uh, area and so and as far as the efficacy or the um, you know I can just I can tell you my my experience is equivalent 
right? Okay. So mm-hmm. in all different areas. Got and it. I think, you know, we can look at different people's experience, but again, some people are going to have better and more experience in one part of the face than the others. You know, we're, we're doing surgery in all of these areas and having and having good success. Yeah, I think it's important to note that um, if you have multiple trigger areas and they're on the back of the head and the front, it's going to be two different surgeries in most cases. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's some um, there are some things. Some people will do um, both the the front and the back. Some people will do the front then the back. Um, and it really depends. Uh, in, in my practice, it kind of depends on what the patient wants and what um, you know, their particular um, circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's some issue with operating on the back of the head and then turning the patient and putting pressure right on the back of the head sure. while you're doing the front of the head right. and, and vice right. versa. But as far as getting everything done at once, it's also a very attractive thing for, for people. So it, it depends on, on mm-hmm. uh, patient to patient. Is any of this covered by insurance? And unfortunately, that's this a is very loaded question. Loaded question. Um, insurance, in my experience, will sometimes pay for some of it. Okay, rarely pay for all of it. Often pay for none of it. Yeah. Okay, and so yeah, that that is that is a very very difficult thing for all of us because. You know, I, again, for me, I know what this is like, right? Mm-hmm. I I want to operate on everybody, right? But at the same time, I want to keep my doors open, right? So you know, we we certainly do everything we can to help with people with financing or you know whatever we can. Uh, but uh, right, you know, in the current insurance milieu in this country, they want to pay for less rather than more, right. and. You know, if you're looking at appendectomy or this, there's appendectomy a lot, is when you take out the appendix. Yeah, there's there's a lot more longer, longer period of time that people have been doing appendectomies than this, and so the the, the insurance companies will often say, "Well, this is a uh, experimental surgery." Right. And you know, you read the data; it's not experimental. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of good data there, but you know. Getting, getting the word out to the public is one issue. Getting the insurance companies is a whole other issue as far as, you know, just having them learn about what the surgery is, how, uh, how effective it can be, and as well, you know, that, frankly, we're improving the costs yeah, it's a huge afterwards cost because you're getting people who are going to the ER weekly. You know, having pain doctors, neurologists, MRIs, and after surgery, that's all going away, yeah. right? But that is a separate fight that we're right now. We're all just working towards um, public knowledge mm-hmm. that there can be help uh, out there for a lot of people who have who are kind of hopeless. Um, there, there's there are things that can be done. Once we tackle that. Then you know, and and tackling the insurance issues are, are yeah, but that, that grows organically. It starts with the public these days. I mean, insurance companies um, do offer a, a great service, but they're also proprietary and for shareholder entities. You know, it's it's the way it goes, and yeah. you have to get the word out. People have to be informed. We talked about the whole basis of this podcast is about education and empowerment. 
getting someone like you on and then espousing what Dr. Guyron has, has developed and Janice, I mean, uh, this is what it's all about and getting the word out for people that are struggling and, and severely debilitated is is so important and then to add on top of that you suffer from the same thing it's pretty uh it's pretty gripping in terms of the story and the fact that you've done all this research and now you're actually doing the surgery and that's the last thing i think that we need to bring up can you without (laughs) violating hipaa maybe even give us a story of someone who came to you kind of the backstory and how it transformed their life so i tell you um as a a resource rather than a plug we've got some video People, you know, video testimonials or whatnot on our, on on our, website? On our website, okay, headingsurgery.com. Um, uh, and, and the other thing I want to just get in before the end here is that there's, you know, there's a growing number of people that are interested in this, but there are a very select number of us who are, you know, really um, proficient running with this and really trying to make this a, a big part of our practice. And, uh, and, and that's also an issue. I mean, there's, um, Dr. Pellid, who who uh, was very instrumental in in teaching me um, things, um, uh, Dr. Afifi at my alma mater in Wisconsin, um, and you know there's uh, some people on the East Coast. Um, Dr. Duchik does a lot of this, and so we all try and get you know we hear a lot about these patients on Facebook and whatnot, and we try to get these people in with those of us who are really. Um, uh, really interested. Obviously, um, Dr. Janice and Dr. Guyron are, you know, uh, are also awesome. But there's not a lot of, it, it, a lot of states don't have anybody, which is one of the reasons that I'm interested in, you know, uh, doing some of this in Colorado, because there's nobody else at, at the moment um, do, doing the surgery. So um, trying to bring the service to as many people as possible. But I can tell you that uh, with my practice in California, I had a gentleman, and I alluded to this earlier, from Kansas. He actually uh, flew out for the surgery. And uh, again, I don't know when you all are watching, but relatively recently we've had some tragedy in, in, in Santa Barbara. And his surgery was scheduled during this horrific fire that we just had. He had to go home because I had to cancel the surgery because my office was in a evacuation zone and I'm a very conservative guy and it was likely not going to be an issue but I didn't want to be halfway through the surgery and have the police knocking on the right. door saying the you firefighter have to go. trying to roll you out right so um, so we canceled the surgery he went home came back um, after the fires and the subsequent floods that we've unfortunately had um, and uh, so I did his surgery. He stayed in Santa Barbara for two weeks, which is not necessary, but he, he wanted to do he's that. He's from Kansas, let's be real. There it you might go. have been necessary for him. Don't hate on Kansas. I mean, um, right next to it. So, uh, so I saw him just before he left. And um, this is a very specific gentleman. He actually has a brain tumor, a known brain tumor, a small one that he's had for years, and he had gamma knife or um, radiation, radiation treatment yeah. and that's a 33 treatment thing and on his third 30, 30th treatment began having headaches and mm. severe headaches and this gentleman is financially successful a loving family who I've met I mean he's got he's got everything you would want um, including uh, and not including um, and a really really bad pain issue 
So we operated on him, and um, again, in the face of this radiation scarring, I, I told him that I'm not sure this is going to work, right? I mean, we were just, he's at the end of his rope. He had tried everything. And I said, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to try this, if, but you have to understand that it, it might not work. Uh, before he left, he told me that um, he had been uh, previously, again, planning on making uh, appointments in Washington State where you can have assisted suicide um, because his pain was that bad. And he told me that he hadn't felt this good in years. And so on his way back to Kansas, he decided he was going to stop and tell your ride um, and go fly fishing. Now, it is winter right now. You're going to tell your ride fly fishing um, in the winter, you're tolerating some baseline pain right there in your legs. And yeah. you, you know, this guy felt so good that 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 was, you know, that that was what he was planning and looking forward to doing. And I, that, that was just an amazing, amazing story. And, uh, you know, again, I just feel real thankful that I get to change people's lives in, in, in that kind of in that kind of fashion but story after story about you know I used to not go to my daughter's softball games and now I travel all over the country with her um, I single parents who you know you got to imagine what it's like to be a parent of a, of a small child and trying to lock yourself in a room quiet and dark um, just because you don't know what else to do you still have a child who's got to be attended to and fostered and all of that kind of stuff, you know? So just getting patients out, interacting with their family and friends again, and it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I'm completely envious of the fact that you get to help people that much. Yeah. But I think I mean it's that. so important, though, that people actually know <clears throat> that this exists. I mean, that's so key. Yeah, you know, in a small way, this podcast and the video, the associated video is going to be helpful, but I just think that starting the discussion with people, mm -hmm. and, and those people there at their wits end, that, that you know, they may not be a candidate. That's the most important thing that Dr. Lowenstein said, is he's a board-certified plastic surgeon, very ethical. Um, you need to go to people that know what they're doing. He was talking around it. You need to go to people that are um, specializing in the surgery. But as, as long as you go to someone who's knowledgeable and ethical and board-certified, uh, you know, you sh should go and seek out information and advice make sure that you've had your full neurology workup you've been treated and go see if maybe you're, you might be a candidate for one of these procedures absolutely the downside is it's not massive um, it's um, you know scars and some things like that maybe some numbness in areas uh, but the upside could be completely transformative yeah, your life back and yeah. you could be uh, fly fishing and tell you ride there you go weeks. there's nothing yeah. more pretty than tell you oh, oh yeah, it, yeah. winter or summer that's true it's gorgeous any time of year all right so uh, let's go through your um, Instagram handle real quick. Yep. How can patients find you? So uh, headachesurgery.com is our website. And okay. frankly, my whole thing on that website is education. So, I mean, I, I can't say this for sure, but I think it's the most comprehensive headache surgery website that is out there um, on uh, and I'm not a social oh, media so maven, but let's see. I think I'm migraine surgeon on Instagram. Here, there you go. I was kind of testing you. I just want you to know that. migraine surgeon on Instagram. There you go. Yeah. So, and then we're on Facebook. Uh, I think it's under again. migraine surgeon. And then also you have a YouTube channel too. 
Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's also migraine surgery. But all your social media links are on your website. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's the best way to do it, right? Because okay. uh, yes. Uh, and then for us, uh, our social media links at Jason Martin MD. If you have interest in plastic surgery, please visit ours. Or actually, just visit Dr. Lowenstein's in terms of the cosmetic stuff. Um, if you liked this podcast, please rate it or rank it and review us. And share review it with us, and, and then also share it with friends. Uh, especially on a topic like this where people may not know. So if you know someone who's suffering from migraines, share this podcast. Let them listen to Dr. Lowenstein, a true expert in this surgery, talking. And hey, everybody. This is Dr. Lowenstein once again, and I have two last things to ask of you. Firstly, the thing you can do for fellow headache sufferers is to please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast. The more ratings and subscriptions that we get, the more visibility that we'll get, and the more listeners will be able to find us, and the more help and information we'll be able to provide the huge population of people who suffer from headache pain. Secondly, please remember that the treatment of headaches of all types is very individualized. The purpose of this podcast is not to give medical advice, so please use the information here on this podcast and elsewhere that you hear on the internet to broaden your knowledge, but consult with your physician before acting on any information that you hear on podcasts or see on YouTube or read anywhere on the internet. I, as a physician, don't necessarily endorse the opinions or practices of my guests, and if you have particular questions that you'd like to consult with me directly about, please call our Headache Surgery Center. Our phone number is 805-969-9004, or you can email us at info at and my staff will set up a consultation, and we can discuss your specific case over the phone or in person. Our website is filled with information as well, and that is headachesurgery.com. Thanks and best wishes from all of us here at the Headache 360 Podcast.